Welcome to Letters to Women, a podcast that explores the feminine genius. How do we live in today's culture? That's a question that I've asked myself quite a bit lately, and it's a question that may be on your mind and in your conversations too. As the world seems to get crazier and crazier, we think about how we can swim against the tide. In the past few years, we've been offered quite a few suggestions and different options by popular authors, but none of these compare to the Marian option. Today, I visit with Dr. Carrie Gress, whose research provides a bird's eye view to the significant culture and events mediated through Mama Mary on behalf of us, her little children. From miracles to the beauty of culture, I've never thought of Mama Mary in the way that Dr. Carrie Gress presents her. She speaks about dogmas, apparitions, miracles, and writings of the saints in her latest book, The Marian Option, and we talk about how devotion to Mama Mary can help us live out the feminine genius in our own daily lives. As a woman with a degree in history, I love the depth of Carrie's research, and I think that you will too. And we're welcoming to the show Dr. Carrie Gress. She is a best-selling author, speaker. She has a doctorate in philosophy, and she's a mom. So we're welcoming her to the show to talk about her latest book, uh, The Marian Option, and just to talk about her life as a Catholic woman as well. So welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. Yeah, thanks for making the time and coming on. So we'll just we'll just dive right into who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about your life as a Catholic woman? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I guess I wear a few different hats, but they're all pretty much at home um, for the most part at this point in my life. I have four small children, um, eight, seven, five, and three are their ages, and um, we homeschool two of them, and um, the littles aren't quite ready for that yet. Or, But um, in any event, yeah, I'm um, basically just a mom, but uh, somehow have when I became a mom, I was finishing up a PhD, and I was determined to finish it and by by actually I, I worked on my dissertation when I was delivering my third child because oh, wow. I was just so determined that I had to get it done because I knew with each additional child it just gets harder and harder mm-hmm. and so um anyway I ended up finishing that but one of the things that I discovered was that I um I already knew I had been a reporter a journalist for Zenit News and I I spent a lot of time writing and so um, between the dissertation and then that experience as a writer I realized that writing books could actually fit in really well with our life and um, especially my life as a mom and so um I've been doing that for the most part for probably the last five or five years and my fifth book is coming out this spring um, but for the most part, my I, I've got pretty average um, everyday Catholic mom, homeschooling mom life with uh, you know plenty of dishes and discipline and books everywhere and, you know, strewn about our house. <laughs> I love it. I love it very much. So the most recent book that you wrote was published through Tan Books, and that's the Marian Option: God's Solution to Civilization in Crisis. And and the the subject of like options is kind of a hot button issue within Catholicism, especially last year with Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. Um, And you speak about that in your introduction, but can you kind of tell us about why, how the Marian Option came to be and the inspiration behind writing it? And then also like just the idea of the different options that we have as Catholics Mm -hmm. in responding to the culture. Right. Yeah. I didn't intend to write this book. This was not a book (laughs) that I, I I sought out to write. It was something that sort of fell into my lap. And, um, I, I was intrigued by Rod Dreyer's proposal of the Benedict option. You know, how is it that we as Christians deal with the world around us, particularly when Christian persecution seems like it's probably only going to intensify and, you know, we've got all kinds of other issues on 
the table, whether it's Islam or now North Korea and uh, just the secularization in our own culture. So I, I think um, I was intrigued by thinking about it through the lens of, of St. Benedict. I have a history major, or I was a history major in, for my bachelor's degree, my, my PhD is in philosophy, but the two of them together are, are pretty complementary. And so mm-hmm. I was intrigued about his thesis and what it is he was saying. So I ended up giving a lecture about it and as I tried to kind of wrap my mind around um, Dreyer's work. And Dreyer is kind of um, famous for being hard to pin down. And so mm-hmm. it was, I just pulled together kind of the, his basic thesis. I didn't have his book yet. And I didn't have it actually until after I finished the manuscript for the Marian option um, to really see what he was saying. And I think that he makes a lot of incredible points, but at the end of the day, Rod Dreyer's, you know, his, it became, became less and less about St. Benedict and this idea of leaving the world and more and more about people just living out their faith. And, you know, I just think it's, it's, his book is just pure marketing genius because of yeah. course, if you came out with a book that was called, just live your faith, you know, True. it would sell five copies. Like, right. no one would buy that book. <laughs> but let's wrap it in, you know, St. Benedict, and all of a sudden people's, you know, the interest in Spawn, and, and for good reason. St. Benedict is a fascinating character, and what right. he did historically is um, was remarkable. Um, but all of that, I, I think, looking at it within the context of history and, and, the, and the broader picture of Christian history, I think Benedict was at a particular time, and yes, there are a lot of comparisons people make between the United States and the fall of ancient Rome, but I think we're at a different stage because um, paganism was so, it it just infused the whole culture, and so really people had to leave, there had to be this sort of leaving of the Roman culture to sort of wash it, and I think this is what Benedict, what his role was for that specific time in history, and we can also see throughout history that whenever there is an issue, God will send saints that sort of are the antidote to that issue, and so um, Benedict is one of those examples, St. Francis of Assisi is another example, he's the little poor man at this stage when the church is being choked by riches, you've got Jesuits come along when the, during the Protestant Reformation. Um, so anyway, all of this is going on in my mind as I'm, I'm working on this. But but fundamentally, um, I, had, I had actually already co-authored a book with George Weigel about John Paul II. And looking at John Paul II's life, it was just crystal clear to me that um, this was a man who already offered us a, a way to deal with Christian persecution. I mean, I mean, if you look at, at the last, well, his whole life, really. Right. First, it was the Nazis that he dealt with. Then it was the Soviets. Then, um, you know, on the world stage as Pope. And so if anybody offers a, a field guide of how to live in the Christian persecution, it was his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but even taking that one step deeper, I looked at what animated his life. And, of course, it was Our Lady. There was so much um, Marian devotion there everywhere. You know, you saw it in his encyclicals. You saw it in his um, other writings. You saw it in his mottos, his um, coat of arms. I mean, she, Our Lady was such a clear presence in his life. And so um, anyway, long story short, what ended up happening was I looked at all of these issues that we face in the world today that we struggle with. And it just became really clear to me that either Mary has already dealt with them um, in, in like issues of Islam or um, like evangelization as a, an issue. Well, where was the largest um source of evangelization that we've seen historically um, that we can really almost count or get a sense of the numbers. And that was Our Lady of Guadalupe yeah. in Mexico. 
Um, so when it comes to all of these issues that we're grappling with, if you look throughout history, you can see that Mary's already dealt with them, and not only has she dealt with them, um, you know, on a small scale, but on huge, with huge numbers and yeah. dramatic effects. And um, so just, it was one of these things where the light bulb finally went on. I was like, you know, it's Benedict's great, but Mary is so much more all-encompassing. And so I, I took this approach with a book where it's a kind of a big picture look at the role that she's played throughout history. And um, I think when you see it all together, it's it's pretty overwhelming yeah. um, to see just how influential she has been. And, and we don't really think of her in those kinds of terms. Um, but when you when you see it all together, it's pretty clear that she's um, she's been busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. I like how <laughs> I like how in the introduction to this book, you talk about how examining the Benedict option and recognizing the beauty and, and some of the things that he offers, but also the fact that like it's a narrower like not all people can completely withdraw. But Mary, right. Mary right. offers this beautiful, like you said, like all encompassing, like everyone can like to have a, a better or greater devotion to Mary. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I, I just find found so much solace in and, and so much hope in was that she's going to work with us no matter where we are in our lives. It's, it's, you know, she may, you know, one person said they did a, a consecration to our lady and then they felt like they needed to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people, they, they, you know, they increase their devotion to Mary and they don't move. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes very clear that she's working with us as unique individuals. And instead of all of us sort of cookie cuttering ourselves into this old model that might may or may not work. Right. Um, it it becomes a very alive and real and and personality centric kind of response where um, all of our gifts are. I mean, she wants our gifts to be used and our our, our mission in life um, to be made clear even more so than we do. And and so it's exciting when you look at it from that perspective of how how active and, and intensely focused she is on each of one of us as individuals instead of us having to look outside of ourselves for a specific answer. Right. I love that. That's so true. I've never even, yeah, I've never thought of it in that terms before I had read your book. So I love that aspect Mm -hmm. of of the Marian option. So very simple, very much. So (laughs) yes, I love simple things. They're very good. (laughs) Right. Right. There's a lot of beauty in it. Very much. So you've kind of mentioned this while you were explaining kind of inspiration behind your book, but in the Marian option, um, after the introduction, you go into how writing about how Mary has an incredible geopolitical influence. Um, mm-hmm. And can you do you've already kind of touched on this, but do you dig a little bit deeper right. in talking about the role that sure. Mary played and like just combating forces? You mentioned Islam, but just even mm-hmm. like pride um, and on right. a bigger scale, communism and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is where it, it's um, it's just overwhelming to see the, the role of her influence. I think having spent a lot of time looking at Fat, Fatima this last year um, with the 100 year anniversary yeah. of it, people kind of have a sense of her role with communism and, and just the warnings of Fatima um, of what would happen. And of course, they all rang true and came, and came true, sadly. Um, where Russia s- has spread its lies, and now we still have a billion people living under communism yep. um, and very godless and, and brutal regimes. Uh, so we can see it there probably most readily in our in our daily lives. But if we look back historically, uh, one of my favorite stories is to look at Spain and um, how you know they had 800 years of Islamic occupation. And I don't think I know I didn't realize it was that many years. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought okay maybe two or three hundred, but 800 yeah. years and for a good portion of that, they the Christians were trying to reclaim their country and just not making any, getting any traction. They just kept, you know, just, they were just stuck. Mm-hmm. And um, they tried praying to St. James, who of course is patron 
one of the patron saints of Spain, and, uh, you know, all kinds of everything from very practical responses to very, very supernatural responses, including St. James. And then finally, a general had this idea that he would um, pray or both pray and fight under the banner of Our Lady. Mm. And that's really what was a a huge turning point in in, um, the occupation. And it was about 400 years in and um, slowly, you know, it still took or under more years to right. gain back all the territory, but that's what really kicked everything off, I think. And um, also during that time, there was a a man, a farmer that was out farming. I think the year was like 1326, and he was out in his farm, and he had this apparition, uh, this vision of this the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. And she said, you know, my Im- my image is is buried here. Can you go tell a priest and have him dig it up and build a church? And so this is, um, that's the farmer, of course, had his priest dig up this image. And it was a, this icon that was supposedly painted by St. Luke. And when the Moors were coming in, um, some of the people in Seville had taken this image and gone up into the hills in the middle of Spain and buried it because they were worried that the Moors would destroy it because it had been given by Pope Gregory the Great to one of the um, cardinal archbishops of Seville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the, the image was taken out, a, a church was built for it, and it became this real rallying point for the Christians um, in that era to, to reclaim their land. And, uh, of course, it was it was found by the um the river of Guadalupe mm-hmm. and it was called Our Lady of Guadalupe. And most people don't realize, and I, I don't think I'd ever really made the strong connection between that there already was an Our Lady of Guadalupe right. in Spain. And then of course, you know, 40 years later, she appears in, um, in Mexico. Uh, so it's just fascinating how all of these roads keep leading back to Our Lady. And even not when in 1492, when the, the fi- finally the Moors were, com- the Islam was finally thrown out of Spain, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella went to Our Lady of Guadalupe to thank her mm-hmm. um, for ridding Spain of Islam. And it was that same zeal that then they they funded Christopher Columbus to go search out the West. And, um, of course, we know the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so all of these kinds of different small connections that, that go back and forth, um, even the, the Battle of Lepanto, which a lot of people have mentioned, where the rosary is played um, or was prayed by all the soldiers um, and a huge naval battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, even after that battle, the um, Don Juan, who was the head of the, ar- the Navy, he sent the flag- flagship um, lantern from the Turks to Philip II, who was the king of Spain, and Philip II then took that lantern and, and gave it to Our Lady of Guadalupe in Spain. So there's wow. all these different kinds of, of Marian connections when you start digging more deeply into um, certainly Western Europe and its protection, but also the expansion to the of the faith out in the West and in, in, in the Americas. That's incredible. I love those stories too, because it's just this showing of how Mary wants to be involved in our lives. Like she's not <laughs> just up there and, you know, watching over us. Like she's very much like in the trenches with us. And that's, yeah. Right. No, it's really remarkable. Just all the, and, and I think it's amazing too, you know, I, and I try to highlight this in the book is, is it's the big things and it's the small things. I mean, they're all, kind of there. It's not like she's just sort of macro managing, but she's right. micro managing. She's in those daily details. And, um, it, you know, there's all kinds of stories about people being miraculously freed from shackles, mm-hmm. um, that they had been enslaved by, by, um, the Muslims, or there are all these also great stories about, um, the Muslims being converted. And, right. um, for the men, 
it was they would have a bad dream or some sort of scary experience that would then lead them to, to conversion. Whereas for the women they would and children, they had very sweet experiences of Our Lady that then led them to, to conversion. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's the exciting thing to see is she's she knows her audience and she, she works with us where we're at. That's beautiful. I think for Catholics, we were used to Mary. We, we grew up with her. We know about her. But that devotion in Catholicism is something that's often distorted, um, especially for those looking like from the outside in. So how, as Catholics, can we like clarify our devotion, especially to like Protestant brothers and sisters, sure. um, mm-hmm. when we talk about her and a devotion to her in our daily life? Yeah, I think this is, is a really hard issue because in many respects, we're almost sort of speaking different languages. Yeah. Um, the first piece would be, of course, that just this idea of, of worship. And um, we certainly don't worship Our Lady, mm-hmm. um, but we have different understandings of veneration that are, are kind of layered. And that's one of the things that, that Protestants don't have that kind of um, nuanced understanding of it. So um, worship is a much more generic idea I think for them so that's that's the first piece of course is to make it clear that we we venerate her we respect her we you know tremendously because she is the mother of Christ we know that he came to us through her so it it makes perfect sense for us to imagine going back to him through her as well Mm -hmm. um but there's some 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 basic um fundamental pieces that are are hard to to get around but I, I think the the bigger issue is really just looking at how she's just this ideal model for us um, as far as following her son, she's the perfect disciple, and um, so that we can learn from from that. Um, but ultimately, what I've come back to is uh, we know Protestants have such a deep relationship with Christ, and um, so I always just suggest, you know, that maybe they should consider asking Christ how he wants them to treat his mother mm-hmm. um, because if these are real relationships it's not a um, you know it's not like we know that our faith is a very both and kind of relationship where right. um, it doesn't have to be you know I love my dad but I don't love my mom mm-hmm. it can be both and if we have this this love of our lady uh, it, it doesn't uh, eclipse our love of Christ and, and a lot of saints have talked about that John Paul II really struggled with that how far is too far mm-hmm. and of course the you know the real answer is we um, we could never love her as much as Christ loves her because right. he loves her with an infinite love. And so, um, you know, short of calling her a goddess and making her into something that she doesn't, she isn't, and mm-hmm. she doesn't call herself, um, it's really hard to go too far in terms of our, our veneration and respect for her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard piece, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess that's again, where the real relationship comes into it, um, with Christ and, and asking him, to, to tell us how he wants us to treat his mother. Yeah, I love that. That's such a good common common ground to start with because, mm-hmm. yeah, but there is that relationship with Christ aspect that they, they really beautifully focus on and having that be a springboard into a conversation about Mary really is a really great way to approach it. Right, exactly. No, I think it, uh, and it, it kind of goes back to that, the intimacy of that relationship instead of it being an issue of doctrine or, um, you know, anything like that that we can get stuck, stuck on and, and really get focused on talking about too much mm-hmm. and missing kind of the reality of what, and that she's a real person. And right. that was one of the things that I really wanted to bring to life that I think um, hopefully came through in the book, um, that just to put some flesh on her and make her a real someone, a real person in our lives and um, not just in a in very abstract form, but um, right. that she really is attending to us as a, as a good mother. Yes, 
I love that when we talk about Mary as a mother the thing that uh, that comes to mind with that is just her aspect of the feminine genius and her maternity and Mm -hmm. you talk about this in the book too but how can Mary's maternity shine a light on our culture of death and as a whole too how can how she lives out her femininity be an option for women who are looking for a role model of what to live what femininity looks Mm -hmm. like in our culture today right yeah no I think this is a Huge question, and actually this question has kind of um, spun off into another book that I'm working on right now, because uh, one of the insights that I had when I was writing this book was just the recognition that we have, whenever you talk about Our Lady, there's always this, this sense of there's Adam and Eve, and then you have Jesus and Mary mm-hmm. as the new Adam, the new Eve, mm-hmm. but um, we don't, you don't ever hear of a female equivalent to the Antichrist. And Mm -hmm. of course, I'm talking about Antichrist as a movement, not necessarily as a person, the way John speaks of it as as a movement. And um, so it struck me, you know, that maybe there is this idea, maybe there really is a spirit of an anti-Mary and that we're seeing that in in our own culture today. Um, Because one of the things that I think if you ask any woman on the street, you know, do you, would you ever think about using the Virgin Mary as a model? About nine 99% 99% of the women would just laugh at you. Like, mm-hmm. are you kidding me? Like, I mean, there's this huge divide between what Mary used to be. I mean, even you can see looking at baby names and how many people have been named Mary throughout the centuries and just that's dropped off precipitously. Um, and and just the, the things that, that drive women today and, and how is it that we are, what are we being motivated by? And so really looking at what it is that the, the culture is doing and what we as women are being told that we need to do to make ourselves happy, um, it's so contrary to anything that Mary is, that Mary does, that Mary honors, that Mary um, really embodies. Right. Um, and so I, I think it's it's interesting to dig into that idea. If that's the case, then we really are living in this with this anti-Marian spirit. Um, and then how do we get, how do we move away from, hey, how do, what is it? How mm-hmm. do we... Um, describe exactly what it is and see it in all the many different facets of our minds and lives and and then how do we root that out and get back to something much more sane and whole and beautiful and and not just uh, you know this is one of the marks of the the anti-mary i think is that it isolates us as individuals um or even groups us as kind of this um, sisterhood of women mm-hmm. but what happens to men and what happens to children and what happens to the unborn right. um, you know they're all sort of kicked to the side of the road it's yep. not not really that important um, so I, I, yeah I think that it this um, has really raised a lot of questions for me and hopefully I'll be answering a lot of those questions in this book on the anti-Mary um, that will be out in um, 2019 um, but yeah it's it's a it's a big question that I think that women we we probably don't even think of very often because our media is so controlled by elite women everything from um, colleges to fashion policymakers in washington dc planned parenthood hollywood all of these are working together and sort of controlling the message that we are getting as women and um, trying to break through that is is um, incredibly difficult because it's just become the water that we swim in right or the air that we breathe um, so yeah, it's a big, it's a big challenge. Yeah. That's incredible. The more that I've learned about Mary and like reading books like yours that, like you said, like put flesh on her, the more it's like, oh wow. Like this is the exact opposite that I'm told mm-hmm. that I should be as a woman. Mm-hmm. And so, right. yeah, just being able to recognize those differences and 
and pursuing a Marian devotion and like recognizing the core of like what it means to be a woman and how well she lives that out is like the perfect model of that. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think even, uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed doing is looking at um, different fairy tales. Mm. And um, what I'm seeing is, is this pattern in fairy tales. You always have sort of this older woman who's envious of a younger, more beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And it's this envy that, that drives um, fairy tales. It's also, you can see it in Adam and Eve. Eve is um, told that there's something else she can have if she, um, you know, disobeys God. And it's just this pattern that we find among women. And um, rather than combating that, it's feminism as an ideology actually encourages it Mm. um, and focuses on, I want that and I want that Mm -hmm. and I want that. And if I don't get all those, you're going to hear about it. Right, (laughs) right. Dude. And um, rather than this idea that... uh, you know, maybe there's there's a lot more that God wants to give us and, and put in our lives mm-hmm. um, through His Spirit, through humility, um, through service, through the gift of ourselves. All of these kinds of things that are are totally unpopular, and yet that's really where we find joy, fruit, um, peace, and um, real satisfaction in our lives. And so, to sort of sh- how do we shift? You know, as Catholic women, how do we shift that pendulum over? Um, back towards Mary. It's, it's, we've got to work it out for us, I think. <laughs> so when approaching that answer to like, okay, like how do we, how do we delve back into what Mary offers? And then not only for women, but also for an answer to like going back to like the Marian option for what we're seeing the world go to like as a culture today, like when it comes to increasing Marian devotion, one of the really good examples that we find is like through the lives of the saints who right. have beautiful devotions to Mary. And you talk about St. John Paul mm-hmm. II quite a bit in this book, which he's one, he's one of my all-time favorite saints. I love him very dearly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the, how, the role that Mary plays in his life and his Marian devotion and how we can look to that as an example for what we're called to live out today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, he obviously, as I, I mentioned, was really what kind of set all of this, um, this book in motion, but, um, yeah, having lost a mother when he was a, a young boy and, um, not having that maternal, I mean, it's very clear that he took up our lady into his heart. Like many other saints have St. Catherine Lavare is a great example of this, yeah. um, who Mary really became this replacement in their souls and, um, helped guide them and lead them. And you can see, you know, throughout John Paul's life, he's just getting closer and closer and closer to her, more and more united. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that that's um, an incredible witness to us. I think the other thing that, you know, let's talk about men for a minute. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that's amazing is the holier a man gets, the better he treats women, the more mm-hmm. he sees their dignity. Um, and I, I think this is the, the real irony of our culture today is that we don't, we don't get this at all. We all, you know, there's, there's been such a misconstrual of the way, um, holy men treat women, but, mm-hmm. you know, look at the example of John, of John Paul II and his friendship with mother Teresa. Right. And you can't see, imagine something any more beautiful or edifying than the love that those two had for each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's what we have lost sight of. And we, we don't realize even, uh, you know, in our own marriages and relationships with others is, rather than it being weighing us down. In fact, holiness frees us and helps us become more ordered and to act in a way that is, is much more edifying to, to, you know, to everyone instead of that um, being, you know, scrutinizing or um, shaming or Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is that people have a misconception in their minds um, about what, what Catholicism and Christianity do to um, a culture. And if anything, it just, 
makes it better, higher, more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are, I think, are important. And and that was what he, you know, he just gave us this incredible example of it, but also an incredible example of um, fatherhood and right. what it means to really lead people to the truth. I mean, he always was famous for saying, "You must decide," and helping people sort of flesh out their issues and then coming back to that, you know. You're the one that has to make this decision. I can't make it for you. Right. Um, but that's what a good father does is it is he leads us to a place where we can make the right decisions and inform decision and educates us, but then leaves that leaves that the ball ultimately in our court. so it's it's our decision. I love that. And our yeah, no, it's a beautiful yeah. example of just authentic fatherhood, I think. yeah, and a, an example that the world definitely needs today. <laughs> so much that so. yes that's for sure and, and that's a sad reality too is is because of the fact that we've um we have we live with this false notion that women can do and be whatever they want what mm-hmm. what we've forgotten is that there are going to be consequences for that and so it doesn't get talked about very much but so many of the problems that we're seeing among um the youth the young millennials and etc is is by and large because of parenting breakdowns right. um and and it's just it's incredibly tragic because we can't even really begin to have a discussion about that um because we don't know how to how to frame the discussion without b- making people feel guilty right um but you know you can't get to any solution if in the, unless you can really point out what the problem is and then find ultimately christ to forgive you and to move on from there so we're just sort of stuck in this yeah. weakness, um, yeah. i think as a culture yep when it comes to parents who are listening or families who are listening um, and women who are listening who are are wondering about their future families or their future vocations and it comes to their spirituality do you have recommendations for how to foster Marian devotion in a home or in a personal life right Um, certainly the rosary is always the the best place to start Um, it's the easiest place to start I think as far as just you know learning it um, and teaching it to our children. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Marian consecration is mm-hmm. another huge, huge piece. I, I think of this puzzle where it just um, takes that relationship to a completely different level, where you you really become so much more, you know, her child. I was thinking about it yesterday. Is it's it's almost kind of like a bulletproof vest. Yep. Um, you know, you can still mortally wound yourself, <laughs> but you at least have this incredible layer of protection that you wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And um, you can see that in a lot of lives of people that have done the Marian consecration where there's just a uh, Mary so much more um, involved and engaged and helping in, in a very direct manner. And um, I've actually just finished writing a book called Marian consecration for children mm-hmm. uh, because I couldn't find one for my own children. Today. Right. I ended up sort of cobbling one together a couple of years ago for my two daughters and it just was so unsatisfying oh. uh, because it wasn't meant for, you know, I guess at that point they were four and six and it wasn't really, you know, something that they could relate to or even wrap their minds around. And right. so uh, I ended up writing my own. And um, one of the things that I was inspired, felt inspired to do was to include a lot of children's books, um, everything from Narnia to Anne of Green Gable, Winnie, oh. Winnie the Pooh, um, Runaway Bunny, all these kinds of different books, princesses and, and knights, all of it's in there. Um, and just kind of use the stories that they already know to help them understand who Our Lady is and who Our Lord is and, and what their own mission is. I think that's one of the things that children have this great thirst to know, you know, what's my mission? Right. And um, if we can kind of help them with that and, and certainly help give them this bulletproof vest to deal with all the things that they're going to have to deal with in their lives that, um, you know, some of them we can't even begin to conceive of, I think, yeah. um, is, is something that's incredibly uh, hope-filled and um, really, a, and just an incredible way to to help 
heal um, the, a lot of our generations and, and, and have a better future for them. Yeah. I love that. I love how, yeah, this new book is making that accessible. I remember when I was younger, my family did uh, 33 Days to Morning Glory by Father Michael mm-hmm. Gately as a family. And right. it's beautiful. I love that book as an adult even mm-hmm. more so. But when back when I was younger, it was like, oh, like, I know this means something. I know this is significant. I know the end goal mm-hmm. of this is good. But on the way there, it's kind of rough when you're younger. Yeah. So, yeah. And then right. being able to do it as a family, too, and have everyone be able to be truly involved is mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, and that was kind of the goal, too. I've included at the end of each day some kind of discussion questions for if a family wants to do it together and just have things to kind of ruminate over a little bit more than um, just the short reading. And then um, I've also included this some kind of fun factoids that were different things. Some of them were in the Marian options. Others were not. But, you know, details like why are ladybugs, con- you know, connected to Mary? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just different historical things that I, I think also reveal how deep her influence is in our culture in ways that we don't really anticipate or, or understand. Right, right. That's beautiful. I love it. I want I want to get it and read it. We don't have a little Sierra on Earth, but I want to read it and just <laughs> use that for my next Marian consecration. Little yeah, people no, are not. <laughs> I, I, I completely think that an adult could, could use it to, to full effect and, and have it really be fruitful in their lives. I, there, I did include it. There's, um, there's five days on Jesus and then there's, um, four weeks after that. And I included mm. some, uh, even a section on virtues and vices, which was oh, really fun. Okay. Um, and, and trying to teach them, you know, how these things are important and how, why they're important. And, um, you know, cu- coupling that with the mission of young saints and, um, and then of course, just why it is that we're drawn to knights and princesses, um, mm-hmm. even as young people. So all of these things I, I think came together really in a really fun, fun way, but at the same time, you're learning and absorbing the faith in, in a very real way. That's beautiful for people to keep track of what you're writing, to be able to find access to books that you have written and the ones that are coming out. Where can they find you online? Um, the best place is, is at my website, uh, carriegress.org. And um, of course, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are other options. But um, by and large, everything goes um, mostly to my website beautiful this is the last question that i ask people who come on the podcast and it's one of my favorite ones to ask and how for for your marian devotion and the work that you've done in encouraging people to foster marian devotion but for you how has fostering marian devotion helped you to understand and live out the feminine genius in your daily life um yeah that's uh, i guess that could be a whole nother podcast but uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the first thing that has done is, just as a mother, I know that I had a lot of anxiety about my children and what's gonna, what kind of world are we leaving them and what could happen to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, certainly up in the middle of the night nursing and worrying about that. And um, this has really quelled that fear um, or those fears and helped given me a sense of, of real peace that she's with us in, in, in our daily lives and, and no matter what happens, you know, she's going to be there to help us. Um, but I think the other thing that it, it has helped me with tremendously is just to see that we're, we can be incredibly fruitful in very quiet things. Mm. Um, we can be incredibly fruitful in, uh, you know, all those daily pains that we have in motherhood. And actually those, those things are intentional. They're not, you know, just incidental and things we need to get through and get over. Mm-hmm. But in fact, those that really shape who we are and, um, make us into the kind of women that we need to become ultimately, um, to then, you know, minister, as spiritual mothers to people around us when we're older. Right. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that culturally we've, we're also really missing is this sense that, you know, we, we think we have our kids and they're out of the house and then we're finished with, with what it, this, this kind of vocation. And yet that's when it can really just get 
be starting, whether it's as a, as a grandmother or um, through something related to teaching in a church or right. even just very casually. Um, I can think of different women that I've, I've met throughout my life that were not, I was not related to, and yet they were incredible mentors or just, you know, great listeners or, you know, just had all this wisdom that I think our world desperately needs. So, um, yeah, I think that there's all these different layers of things that, that I've really learned through this experience that um, have given me great hope and, and peace. Thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on today and for your time. And yeah, thanks so much for just encouraging what our what our world needs today, which is yeah, <laughs> turn back to Marian devotion. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Chloe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find Carrie's website, links to how to find Marian option, and news about her newest book for littles on Marian consecration in the show notes. And those are on my blog, oldfashionedgirlblog.com. I would love to get to know you better. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and let me know what episode you most enjoyed or what episodes you'd like to see in the future. The more rates and reviews this podcast has, the easier it is for other people to find it. If you're interested in getting behind the scenes polls, episode sneak peeks, you can join my team at patreon.com backslash letters to women. Starting at only a dollar a month, you can get access to gifts, previews, and exclusive content. And that's all I have for today's episode. So until next time, be not afraid.